0: Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment Podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Steve Magnus. He's a world-renowned expert on performance, well-being, and sustainable success. He's the co-author of the best-selling books, Peak Performance and the Passion Paradox. And in his coaching practice, Steve works with executives, entrepreneurs, and athletes on their performance and mental skills. In addition, Steve's expertise on elite sport and performance has been featured in The New Yorker, Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Guardian, Business Insider, and ESPN The Magazine. His newest book, out now, is called Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. Welcome, Steve.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys absolutely
0: man on. and thank you for coming on so to read a quick passage from
2: steve's book steve wrote, the person who hates the other because that's a lot easier no the person who yeah the person who hates the other because that's a lot easier than facing their own pain and suffering the parent who confuses demandness demandingness for discipline the coaches who mistake control for respect mm-hmm. and the vast majority of us who have mistaken external signs of strength for internal confidence and drive we've fallen for a kind of fake toughness that is control and power driven developed through fear fueled by insecurity, based on appearance over substance. Yet we are in a new era, one in which the emerging science and psychology on overcoming challenges point to a radically different definition of toughness. Regardless of whether it's on the sporting field, in the classroom, or in the boardroom, strength and resilience don't come from blindly powering through adversity or pretending that punishing ourselves yields results. Instead, real toughness is experiencing discomfort or distress, leaning in, paying attention, and creating space to take tough, thoughtful action. It's maintaining a clear head to be able to make the appropriate decision. Toughness is navigating discomfort to make the best decision you can. And research shows that this model of toughness is more effective at getting results than the old one. Real toughness is much harder than the fake kind. To understand what toughness is, we can look to, to another successful coach, and that's who we'll be talking about in a minute, one who allows his players to be who they are celebrating the way they see the world one who encourages meditation and yoga or shifts from a meeting to playing a ring toss if his players get heated according to one star player he's never negative doesn't scream he finds a way to turn a mistake into a positive so first of all i love that phenomenal writing and then so steve who is the coach that you were referring to here or
1: we're about to refer to here yeah and that passage is pete carroll
2: yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about him and how he differs from some of the other coaches like that you a Bobby are? Knight. Yeah, like yeah. Bobby Knight. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> exactly. So I, I think so much, if you especially in the sporting world, if you look at coaching, we often think of toughness and we look at people like Bobby Bobby Knight, who are just like these incredibly demanding, you know, screamers, yell airs. In Bobby Knight's case, like he literally got fired for, for choking a player. And we often, you know, that besides the point, we often hold those people up on, look how much power they have. Like this guy creates tough teams, but what we, we often neglect are the coaches like Pete Carroll, who creates an environment where don't get me wrong. Like his athletes work hard, Mm -hmm. but they, he creates an environment where it's almost like he's inviting them to work hard where it's saying, you know what football is going to be tough, but In order for you to thrive, I'm going to put you in a place where you can succeed, where I'm going to support you, where instead of yelling, demeaning and screaming at you all the time, we're going to say, hey, I acknowledge this is really difficult, but like, let's challenge ourselves. And what you see is in coaches like Pete Carroll or others like Steve Kerr or even going back uh, like John Wooden in basketball Mm -hmm. is they understood to get the most out of someone. It's not to put them in a place of fear, right? It's not to put them in a place where someone's just surviving, but it's to create the security in the, in the competition space where they can take risks, where they could potentially fail, but it's in the name of growth and development. And, and to me, that's kind of what it's all about.
0: You know, what I found, and I'm totally with that. What I find very interesting, though, is that somebody like a Bobby Knight, he did actually get results with his team, despite using fear and being such an authoritarian. What do you think is the is sort of the distinction between his method and maybe somebody like a Pete Carroll in terms of maybe uh, sustainable success?
1: So there's a couple things, and I I talked to some really smart basketball player people, you know, coaches, general managers, all that on, on this topic, because uh, everyone would ask, well, Bobby Knight won a lot of games. He won championship, all that stuff. And, and two key themes kept coming up is one, if you look at successful coaches, it doesn't mean that every single thing they are doing contributes to that success. Mm -hmm. In fact, most of the people I talked to said, you know what, great coaches, even if we're talking, you know, whoever, they, they get maybe 70, 80% of the stuff right. And if you look at Bobby Knight, he was an absolute genius, especially during that time in his basketball IQ. Mm-hmm. You know, running plays, developing defensive systems and all that good stuff. And everyone still acknowledges like great coach at those kind of fundamental X's and O's. Mm-hmm. So you look at that, that is probably what contributed to success more than anything else. Right, he had that knowledge and could it could apply it. No. But again, when I talk to you know experts, they'd say, did his kind of extreme discipline and demandingness really contribute? No, it probably took away honestly. But the other thing that I think also occurs is that most of his success came in the seventies, eighties, and a little bit in the nineties before he starts falling off into the nineties and two thousands, and. Culturally, we were in a different spot where if it was like a different talent pool or a different talent game in the sense that people had fewer options. So back in the 70s or 80s, like you're the best basketball player in Indiana. You're going to Indiana because like this is the school to go to. Nowadays, it's like you have more options. It's like, oh, I can you know travel across the country and take a visit to wherever to go to you know this this place where they treat me better and all that stuff it's why athletes now have the power to transfer easier and you see that a lot more in the college ranks because they're saying you know what it kind of sucks here i'm going to go over to this other place so i think in the in the you know 70s 80s whatever it was a much more the coach had full control And, you know, players didn't have much autonomy or freedom. So it was either like you went to Indiana and either you survived or you you quit. And the option of quitting was often, well, do I want to go back and, you know, live in the small town that I came from and not get my college degree or what have you? So I just kind of survived. Hmm. So, you know, it, it put players in a different kind of mindset.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. And it seems like like coaches for ages, I mean, have had kind of an inordinate amount of power where um, not to get into this too much because this is a bit of a sidetrack. But like now what's sort of tearing up the sports world is uh, so Dana White, I'm sure you might have already seen Steve. Yeah. So Dana White was on a Gronk show. And then he pretty much said that like, uh, so did Tom Brady and Gronk were essentially on their way to becoming Raiders. And then Gruden kind of nixed the whole deal. And so what's funny is so I'm a Tampa Bay Bucks fan. And I mean, I've known about Gruden for ages. I mean, he was at one point or another, my favorite coach for a very long time. And And it wasn't surprising to me. So at first I was like, wait, but Gruden loves like star players. But then I was like, wait, no, no, no. Because when Brady went to Tampa, Brady took control over everything. Gruden would have never allowed that. So Gruden is essentially the NFL version of Bobby Knight. And then if you think about like the level of ego between like him and Brady, that would have never worked out. They would have clashed. And in some way, kind of Gruden sacrificed victory because, or maybe he just thought he would win regardless. But so just, and now going back into Steve and to your work. So do you think that that kind of happens with these coaches where there's so not to use a pejorative term, but I think it kind of applies. Like they're a little bit mega maniacal where they think, you know what? It actually doesn't matter who my players are. I could win with anybody kind of like what it seems like Bill Belichick is doing now.
1: Absolutely. I think that's a a great example and kind of gets this, this point across perfectly, which is like in. For a long time, coaches had way more distribution of power. And now you're seeing that shift a little bit. And when you have that distribution of power, you think like, Oh, The reason we succeed is it's me as the coach. I can make any of these players great or what have you. But what the athletes are realizing is they're like, oh, I have value and I have a little bit more power. So you see this in the NFL where, you know, whether the Brady example of like, you know what, I'm going to kind of run this a little bit and tell you what to do because like I know what it takes to win or in the NBA, you're seeing You know, these kind of stars team up and being like, I want to win a championship. So you're going to get me X, Y, and Z player, or else I'm going to go find a better spot. So players are exerting a lot more power than, you know, they maybe had 10, 20, 30 years ago. So it creates this interesting dynamic, right, between coaches and players. And I think at the end of the day, yes, coaches matter absolutely, but talent is king. So if you can get good, talent and get good talent working together you're gonna succeed mm. so you, you know this is where i think the players realize like oh like we want to be in a place where we can win and and actually you know enjoy being on this team versus you know being in a miserable situation where it's like this sucks um i'm not enjoying it and if we're not winning then what's the point and i think you know, maybe to bring some clarity to listeners is you often in modern times, you find these kind of authoritarian power-driven coaches. They can succeed as long as they're keep winning year after year because the players put up with it because they're like, well, I got a shot at a championship, so I'm going to tolerate this. The moment you stop, you know, getting on that winning train or stop having that kind of dangling carrot out there where it's like, I can be taken to the promised land. It, it often all falls apart. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And when you take away uh, someone's autonomy as well, I mean, then they themselves can't be a leader potentially. Right. I mean, it's not just in in sports, a uh, authoritarian parent, for example, if they don't let the child uh, uh, make their own choices, I mean, what kind of, how are they going to develop? What kind of person will they become? Are Are they going to be, Are they going to be an authoritarian just like their parents before them, or is there potential for change? Right. Right.
2: And and Steve, is that kind of something that you find or that you found in your research where it's like authoritarianism in some cases or in some respects, like begets authoritarianism, where when you have authoritarian parents, just like you have authoritarian coaches and players, they sort of in turn learn that technique and think like, this is the way to do it."
1: it. Absolutely. It's something that's passed down. Because, I mean, we all do this. Well, how do we learn how to parent or coach or lead or what have you? We learn from whoever was our parent or our leader or our coach. And this is why it's like this almost never ending kind of cycle, because for a long time, that authoritarian style was the dominant uh, approach, especially in coaching, but to degree in parenting as well. Um, and it takes time to change that where someone realizes like, oh, like there's other ways to do this. Like we can take other approaches. And the the parenting research is actually kind of fascinating to me Mm. because what it shows is, you know, parents often assume, oh, if I take this authoritarian style, then my kids are going to be more disciplined, more tough, whatever have you. And the research actually shows it's it's the opposite. It's that authoritarian parents often, you know, have children with more behavior problems. And and the reason is pretty simple is because if you give that child, as you just said, there no choice. Mm. Well, they only learn one way to cope and deal with difficult things. And that's like, okay, I'm going to obey my parent as long as they're there. But the moment they're gone, like, I'm going to figure a way around this, right? They're going to figure out how to get out and avoid curfew or whatever crazy, you know, uh, authoritarian kind of rule they have on them. So you're, you're not teaching your kid how to cope and, and deal with the actual stuff. You're teaching them almost like avoidance. Now, I'm not saying like have no rules, et cetera. There's this, and again, the parenting research shows this quite clearly is this, there's this balancing point between high expectations versus like high levels of support and autonomy. And if you can find that, that sweet spot in the middle, good stuff happens.
2: No, I love that. Yeah. And you mentioned Bill Walsh, who for me was like one of the greatest, I mean, for everybody, this is obviously not just individual to me, uh, but he was, you know, one of the greatest, one of the greatest coaches of all time. Right. So, and what I love about Bill Walsh is he took the time to actually nurture his players by teaching them and explaining to them why he was doing certain things and why he was calling certain plays, uh, certain kind of like just packages, formations and whatnot. So let's kind of get into coaching as an example, right? So we've already distinguished who Bobby Knight was and what his coaching style was, what made it effective. Obviously, Alan touched on why it wouldn't be effective. And then, so Pete Carroll, right? You mentioned him as this sort of pillar of, uh, of like healthy coaching slash maybe even parenting to some extent. So what is it about Pete Carroll that in some way, you know, kind of sets him apart from these people and puts him into a category of a Bill Walsh in some respect?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at uh, coaches who have similar styles, is they generally have a couple different characteristics, which is A, as I said, they find that sweet spot. Where, yes, they want athletes to compete. Yes, they are going to put them in difficult situations, but they give them enough freedom and autonomy to kind of support, to explore that area so that they're almost on that journey with them, right? So it's the Bill Walsh example of, we're going to work hard, but I'm going to tell you why we're working hard. I'm going to tell you why we're running these plays or doing things a little bit differently than all the other teams maybe you've been on before like there's that teaching, that partnership, this we're on the journey together. The other things that are really important as well is that you see these coaches, they find ways to allow players to make progress. It's about growth, not only in your play, but as your development as a person. And when people feel like they can grow in this environment, they are way more motivated and way more likely to persist instead of quit or resist or whatever you want to call it. So they find ways and moments to say, you know what, we're making progress. And that progress isn't always defined as, you know, wins or losses or your stats or what have you, but ways to signal, Hey, here's our process. Here's how we're getting better. And then the third thing that I think is really important for coaches, like, Carroll or Bill Walsh or John Wooden or whoever it is, is they create an environment where people feel like they belong Mm -hmm. and that they can thrive. And I I remember, actually, I took a a class in grad school by a former uh, NFL general manager who won a Super Bowl as a GM. And it, it was a fascinating class. But I remember this. He said, you know, make sure everybody has a role. And it's very easy for the top players to understand their role, right? They're like, I'm the star. I'm the starting wide receiver or quarterback. Like, of course I know my role, but what happens is often we neglect, you know, the guys on the practice squad, the guys who are on special teams, the guys who barely see, you know, the third string quarterback. And when you neglect them and they don't feel like they have a role, then they start, they stop seeing how they're contributing to the team. And they get a little discontent and they get a little more unmotivated. And from the bottom up, that almost swells to this discontent in the team. So one of the really important things that I think coaches in this kind of autonomy supportive environment do is they realize that, you know, everybody's got to have a role on the team and feel like they're contributing to our progress overall and that they belong. Even if that role is simply, hey, I know you might not see the field. But every week you are literally the guy in practice who is, you know, mimicking the other team's star cornerback. So like you're helping our starters prepare and the better you play in practice, the better our starters are prepared. So you're you're contributing to the team. So it's finding ways like that to make sure that everybody knows that, you know, on some level they matter.
2: Wow, I love that. And I mean that kind of makes me think of Bill Belichick. So what he normally does and this is something that seemed to be uh, at least for a while, maybe not anymore, but it seemed to be antithetical to the way things worked was that like everybody else GMs, coaches, they would focus on star players, but Bill Belichick found value where other people couldn't see it. So he made trades for like these random players and people would be like well, like why is why is he even doing this? This isn't really that important. And for him he's like, "Look, man, we're going to have I'm sure he didn't even say this. I'm sure somebody said this as a quote from him because Belichick is notorious for not speaking to the media. um. So somebody said, like, for Belichick, it was like, look, we're going to have a lot of games that are going to be decided by about three to six plays. And those players that you would never think of, they're going to be the ones who decide those games. And those are the games that are going to get us into the playoffs and on, you know, to the Super Bowl. But like, uh, for the most part, you know, we're sort of dazzled by stars, but we fail to see people who are like, uh, or people who are not just contributors. But if you look at even just myopically in terms of winning games, David Tyree from the Giants, right? A guy who was notorious practice player. I mean, it could be argued that he was one of the main factors of them winning that Super Bowl. And now it's like people like, who's David Tyree?
1: Exactly. I love that example, because I think what what uh, coaches like Belichick understand is that like you never know who's going to be that person who steps up in that moment. So it matters that it's top to bottom. You've got people in place where you know you can help them grow, develop, and and, and like do things or accomplish things that that really matter. As I said, another uh NFL longtime coach called it, told me the bottom 20% rule, which is like, I gotta make sure the bottom 20% of my roster, like are guys that I know I can count on, and then again, have that role. So that you know, inevitably they're gonna probably they're gonna probably suit up and contribute at some point where maybe I didn't expect it. And I think that is, it's human nature to kind of focus on the talent. And obviously we need the stars and all that stuff and they matter and they're going to get us 90% of the way, but it's often like the small things or the, the small role players who often kind of make the difference in those, those pivotal moments. And if you neglect that, you're not only setting yourself up for not having someone to come through, but I think, you know, as well, you set up the culture of the team in fact, there was this wonderful study outside of sports, but this really kind of drove, drove it home for me is a couple of psychologists looked at success in the, uh, the Air Force Academy. And if you look at the Air Force Academy, how it works is essentially you go in, you get assigned to your squadron, whatever they call it. And then for the next four years, like those are your people. Those are the people you do everything with. And they wanted to see, well, what made you know really successful squadrons successful like what were the ones who you know improved physically the most and like academically on the all the stuff and they thought it would be like the 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 squad captain for lack of a better term the best person in there the fittest you know strongest all that stuff but what it actually turned out to be is every squadron went the direction of the least fit person in there wow So the least fit person, and the reason they think this is what happened is because if that person was training hard or like working hard, everyone else looked around and was like, well, I know this person's like the worst at the push-ups or the mile run or whatever test it is. And they're, they're busting their ass. So I'm going to do that. And it went up the, up the chain so that everyone worked harder and therefore everyone improved better. If the least fit person said, who cares? Like, what's the point? then that brought down the motivation of everyone else. And I think that I think of that study often in sport, in academics, and whatever have you is that so often we we think and focus on the top. But it can come from the bottom up on like the motivation and and our willingness to improve.
0: Wow. Yeah. And this sort of translates to the workplace too, right? Like, I mean, of course, like we could think of our star players as uh, managers, CEOs, directors, and all of that. But if you think about the people who who work underneath them, I mean, uh, what makes uh, those teams the most successful? It's not necessarily um, the the manager's ability to manage them. it's it's also to, Foster sort of a sense of psychological safety, right? Like a a sense that I mean, we we talked about this before, right? But sort of giving autonomy even to the you know quote unquote uh, weakest or lowest uh, person on the on the totem pole, and that's I know it sounds like I'm calling them weak or low. I don't mean that. I just mean hierarchically, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, in yeah. in the in the status kind of, wise, right, status right. wise, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah as it, far as that goes, yeah. it
1: it is, and it absolutely yeah. applies in the workplace. Is that you know um people know this like we all know this we all know or have been in this situation where maybe we were in a job and we were like micromanaged to death right and what happens in that job you start to become miserable why because you feel like you have no autonomy you feel like you can't do anything or maybe utilize any of your talent or innovative ideas to solve any problems because you know you're just kind of told to you know follow these directions and and mm-hmm. don't deviate whatsoever and it becomes miserable and that often can radiate up you know the workplace where it's like workers aren't 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 um aren't productive and then another thing that i think also ties into this and i've mm-hmm. it's been a while since i read this research but they they found that you know when companies Are struggling on a really difficult problem, you know, one Mm. of these barriers that, like, okay, this is holding our organization back. It is often the people, I think it was like three or four levels down, Mm. that have the answer to that problem. Wow. Right. So Mm. if you, if you neglect kind of that hierarchical lower spot, you often preclude yourself from solving the, the the big issue or the roadblock. And this this again makes sense. Think about it in terms of like understanding of the company. Often what happens is like the CEO or the manager is like, yeah, they have a high level understanding but they don't have that detailed level of the day-to-day understanding of the issues that the company might face or where those things are. Mm-hmm. And there is someone, not everyone, but someone a couple levels down that understands like, oh yeah, like we deal with this all the, all the time. Like this is the major roadblock preventing us from taking that next step or from solving whatever mm-hmm. roadblock we're kind of on. So that's why I think it's a, a, again, important from top to bottom is creating that sense of autonomy and progress and like freedom to a degree so that you can nurture and develop those people, you know, down the hierarchy a little bit, because just like in sport, at some point they're going to be the key person who comes through in that moment. And you even, you've either, you know, cultivated and trained them up and freed them to do that or you've kind of stifled them that so when that moment comes they're not going to step up or they're not going to speak up
2: right so all right, I want to ask uh, kind of a tough question, which obviously you may or may not know the answer to. So we had uh Brad Johnson on the podcast last year. So uh, for those who don't know, Brad Johnson is the quarterback who won the championship with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers ages ago. Mm-hmm. So Brad loves Gruden. So anytime, like, you know, anybody mentions Gruden, Brad loves him. But Gruden is this like authoritarian type coach, and he's notorious for having bad relationships with his players. We can say a good amount of players really dislike him. Keyshawn Johnson was number one, Uh, but Brad loves him and brad's like yo listen man this guy got me to exactly where i needed to go right so i mean do you think that it's so do you think that it's like a fit issue where for some people these kind of coaches work and for some they don't or are we mostly saying that somebody like brad johnson is more like an anomaly and that it's actually no it's the pete Carrolls of the world who are mostly successful and again gruden he might have his day in the sun but for the most part if we're looking at the aggregate data he's actually not going to be successful
1: That's a really good and tough question. And I I don't have the answer for that. But what I can tell you is, of course, there's a component of fit in this, right? And if we really wanted to know, we'd have to like understand, you know, that relationship that Brad Johnson and Gruden developed. But what I would also say is in, in this is Gruden is often known as like this guy who like quarterback guru, like loves quarterbacks. So he might, whether he knows it or not, like he, te- you know, treat that quarterback differently than maybe someone, you know, the the linebacker or cornerback or like starting center or whoever it is. Right. Because like Gruden's passion about quarterbacks, like he wants to dive deep and go in. So maybe for Brad Johnson, again, there's that fit where it's like, no, this guy challenged me and got me better and gave me all this attention of, of course, like, I'm going to support and love this guy. So there is is kind of this nuance here. And there's nuance even on the coaching styles that I think, you know, might might differ a little bit uh, with how each coach handles the relationships of the players they're, they're coaching.
2: Well, and that might actually explain why some players disliked him, because if he's favoriting, like literally we're favoring, if he's favoring just like this group of quarterbacks, you know, from like the young guys coming up and obviously the veterans like Brad, I mean, yeah, of course, other people are going to be like, wait, why are they getting this special, special attention? We're all
1: teammates. It, exactly. And this is one of the hardest things as the coach is like, you know, on a football team, you've got what 53 guys at least. Um, so, how, how do you handle that? And in your head, maybe in Gruden's head as a coach, he's like, well, I can't give every 50, you know, plus players attention. And, you know, i my job is to coach up the quarterbacks. It's the other coach's job to, you know, coach up the the linebackers or what have you. So it's a difficult thing to kind of, kind of create. And that's why I think, you know, everyone talks culture and sport because like getting that kind of cultural you know, Malu like perfect or good is so important. And it's also so fragile where it can kind of break down even with coaches who know what they're doing. So that's why I think it's kind of this magic ingredient in sport that you have to kind of always pay attention to. And and the best coaches that I've seen kind of have a finger on the thumb of where it is. And they're able to, to step back and be like, you know what, our culture like, It's going in the right, wrong direction, maybe like how do we course correct and get it get it back on track. Right. Mm.
0: I was wondering, um, or I mean, I kind of know, of course, having read the book, but um, in terms of Texas A&M and sort of what they got wrong in terms of preparing uh, in terms of, uh, you know, weeding out the, the weak from the chaff, right? What is it that they got wrong in terms of their understanding of what the military did to uh, develop or to uh, pick the toughest uh, sort of recruits?
1: Yeah, so I love this story. My wife actually graduated from Texas A&M, so she gives me a lot of crap for for, uh, telling this story in the book. But but the story is this, is that when Paul Bear Bryant took over for Texas A&M, he put players through the camp from hell, right? Everybody knows the Junction Boys story where it's like we went to Junction and then we put people through crazy workouts and, you know, they went there on, I forget, like three buses, came back on one, you know, weeded out everybody the what they got wrong is this is that um a if you look at the players who didn't make it many of them were talented athletes so they lost some very talented athletes who might have been able to help them and and thrive in those situations it's why they likely went one in nine that first season after that junction camp Mm -hmm. So they lost players who went on to play in the NFL, a couple who went on to play, you know, switch sports to baseball and were all conference in baseball. They lost some guys who went on to become literal literal war heroes, Mm -hmm. right? So there's no doubt those athletes had the talent to play football and help the team. But when you looked at the difference between the athletes who maybe quit and the ones who stayed, I forget what athlete who said it, But uh, when they when they asked, well, why do you stay, he said, essentially, I had nowhere else to go. (laughs) I had no other options where if you think about it like 1950s, you know, college, it makes sense. It's like, you know, go play football for A&M or go back, you know, to rural Texas and work on the fields with my parents. Of course, I'm going to stay. The players who quit often had other options. They could play other sports. They left often to go to the NFL or do other things. And they said, you know, what's the point here? I'm going to go apply my, myself in a place that, that I can thrive. And I think that's where we often get, get things wrong. As, as I said at the beginning here, talent is the king. So if we're giving away talent that could develop in, a, in an environment and could turn into people who are going to contribute as their team, we're losing out over the long haul. And if you look at the military, what did they do? Or what do they do differently? Mm-hmm. Is we often see things like hell week through the Navy SEALs or crazy training. And we say, oh, that's how the military you know, is successful. That's how they create tough people. Mm-hmm. But what they're doing there is that's actually a simulation relevant to their experience to see like, well, how are people going to handle this, this moment? We can't take everyone for the Navy SEALs. So let's see, how are people going to handle this? It's not their method to train people. Mm-hmm. Their method to train like resilience and toughness is completely different. Mm-hmm. It's let's, let's sit people down. Let's, let's coach them up. Let's put them through PowerPoints and lectures and bring in all these sports psychologists and say, hey, when you go through me- mentally tough situations or when you're in the battlefield or trying to survive, here's how you keep your head on straight and keep your mind clear so that you can accomplish the goals and not become overcome by stress. They teach them. Mm -hmm. And then after they teach them the skills, they, then they put them through some difficult things, you know, that will simulate it because it allows them to test out these skills. And then afterwards they review them and say, Hey, here's where you went wrong. Or like, here's what we can do better. Or did you freak out in the middle of this? Or did you, you kind of lose your, your cool, well, great, like, let's try these other skills over here. It's not just mindlessly saying, here's this difficult thing, go see who can survive. And whoever survives is the toughest. Right. You know, some people might be able to be tough, but they just don't have those skills that are developed yet. So if we gave them and developed their skills, they might be one of the toughest people ever. But, you know, we all come in with different attributes.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, traditionally, people just have this image of somebody who can endure uh, something incredibly tough as, you know, that that's somebody who we would consider a tough person. Right. But I mean, it's interesting that the, these skills are something that are uh, that things that you can develop. Right. Like there's a degree of self-knowledge that you need to be able to have in order to be able to deal with uh, tough things. You can't just, uh, as you say, uh, one of the pillars is not to Uh, necessarily react, but to respond. Um, I suppose on that topic, I mean, uh, what are some ways maybe that maybe you would practice or maybe uh, others are are taught how to sort of uh, respond as opposed to react?
1: Yeah. So I think one thing to kind of make this clear for people is there was this wonderful study that looked at uh, military personnel, special forces, when they put them through a survival training the first time. And 90 something like 94% of them experience disassociation. Wow. Which is which is like disassociation is like, you know, fog of war, your mind stops working right, time seems like it's going, you your memory goes, like you can't remember and tell people what your experience was, mm-hmm. which isn't a state that you want to be in in the military. But the reason I love that story is it tells you that even these people who have been selected often aren't that good at the thing, you know, initially, you know, they have to train it up. So I think this is where that kind of respond, not react idea is, well, what are we doing? What we're trying to do is not just kind of put our head down and push through things. We're trying to create space so that we don't react to things so that we don't feel that stress and then go, oh, I'm going to freak out or that stress. And then my mind kind of shuts off and I go into survival mode. What we're able to do is kind of, we feel that stress and then we're able to kind of like turn that alarm down and learn how to sit with it. And, and in terms of, you can look at this in two different ways is one skills that help us with us this. And then two is the practices that, that really kind of, you know, turn that alarm down. Mm -hmm. And for that second one, turning down your alarm, it's pretty simple. It's You want to do activities that challenge you, that bring on a little bit of discomfort, that send that alarm going, that tell you to, you know, escape or whatever, get rid of this feeling. And regardless of what it is, you just want to spend time doing them and trying to just stay calm, cool, and collected. Mm. So for example, for listeners, something (laughs) as simple as like, jumping in an ice bath and trying to keep your mind from being like, get out, get out, get out, right? Just being like, you know what? This kind of sucks. I'm just going to kind of sit here and be calm, right? And it's hard. But what you're doing is you're trying to convince your brain that, hey, brain, this isn't life or death. We don't need to flee, right? right? We're okay. And the second thing is, okay, great. You have to do experiences like that to kind of learn how to turn that alarm down, the second thing is learning skills that allow you to kind of keep calm during that. So everything from um, helping understand like the emotion that you're experiencing, and the emotion I kind of throw in there with like pain, discomfort, anxiety, stress, what have you, is the better we're able to understand that kind of emotion we're experiencing, the better we're able to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So when you're in that difficult moment, maybe you're I don't, you're going out and you're running a race and you have this like overwhelming feeling of pain. If you can separate that out and understand, well, what does this pain really mean? Does it mean, you know, my legs are tired? Does it mean I'm running out of fuel? Does it mean I'm breathing really hard? Does it mean I'm about to be injured? Like really understanding the nuance of that because pain or discomfort is kind of like this nebulous signal but if we can split apart what a- often happens is there's small signals within it that tell us an action we can take right mm-hmm. if it's because i'm dehydrated or or like thirsty then we can solve this pain by taking water right if it's because our legs are are feeling tired and fatigued well we know we can keep pushing because that means it's not an injury it's just fatigue right mm-hmm. and then other things like you know m- uh utilizing the 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 voice in your head the self-talk that you have right so often what happens in difficult moments is our self-talk spirals and goes negative and we just start thinking of like worst case scenarios Mm -hmm. um what we can learn how to do is kind of dislodge that cycle and and by dislodging us give us enough space to actually kind of throw in some self-talk that that Focuses us. So, for example, there's some wonderful research that shows that shifting our self talk from like first person, so like I've got this to second or third person, so you've got this, or come on, Steve, you've got this. Just that subtle shift. What it does is it your brain almost goes like, hey, wait a minute. I'm used to hearing you say, like, I've got this, or I'm in trouble. Like, Hmm. who is this Steve person? And because your brain, like, has to pause for that moment it creates what psychologists call the psychological distance which turns that emotion down a little bit and allows you to kind of get back into control Mm -hmm. so this is often also you can use the same thing going from inside voice to outside voice so talking to yourself so this is often why athletes maybe before big play you you can see them or hear them like mumbling or yelling at themselves why? Because when we talk to ourselves, it sounds a little bit weird. But when we say something out loud, our brain has to interpret it in two ways. Both we're saying it, but it's also hearing us or we're mm-hmm. hearing ourselves talk. So it dislodges and creates a little, dis- again, psychological distance where it's like, oh, maybe I should pay attention to this out loud voice instead of the one that's spiraling out of control and telling me that I'm sucked. I suck and I'm tired and I should give up.
0: Right. Interesting. Yeah, because that voice is going to play a role no matter what, right? Especially if you're tired, it's going to default to negative. Uh, But then knowing that about yourself, right? And then being able to, you know, uh, take autonomy back with that outside voice. That's, that's very interesting. I mean, I guess if I had to think about personally, something that I do is I just don't even trust the voice in my head at all. Because, I mean, usually I try to make this distinction. It's like, uh, usually, if that voice in my head is negative, usually it's not because I'm choosing to talk to myself that way. It's sort of just kind of happening. As opposed to if I'm actually brainstorming or in a sort of a mode of critical thinking, then I kind of know, okay, this is more me in the in the driver's seat. So that's sort of me personally, though. But I I do like this, the putting distance between uh, you and that voice by saying like, you've got this. It's something I'm gonna. I've done by accident, but not on purpose. Right. So. And by the way, yeah. No, go ahead, see.
1: No, I, I was going to say, I love that strategy you talked about because what you're essentially saying is that like, this voice isn't me, which is yeah. true. Like, We tend to think, I think, sometimes we give our voice power because we're like, oh man, why am I thinking these things? I must be horrible or weak or what have you. Mm. But we have all sorts of crazy thoughts that pop into our head all the time. But most of the time we say, yeah, yeah, I hear your voice, but like, that's not me. I'm not paying attention to you. Like, I'm not that person, like whatever. And I think, you know, in these moments, that that crazy voice that you just talked about that tells us to quit, to stop, whatever. I like to think of it as, that's just my hyper-reactive brain that is like, yeah, of course it's going to try and get me to stop because I'm doing something that is difficult and that is not like sitting on my couch. So it's it's like... My, my brain's job is to protect me. So of course, it's going to say all sorts of crazy things because it wants to go live on comfort land, not in like this comfort land. So same thing you just said is any way you can kind of convince yourself that like, yeah, that's not that's not really me. That's just like my crazy brain talking is a good, good strategy
2: right and it's like for us these processes like seem so automatic so obviously with Alan like the kind of voice techniques or the inner voice techniques resonated for me it was actually the part about pain so uh, for me I'm actually really like you Steve so I'm a perfectionist and I kind of struggle with sort of figuring out like when is it that what is first of all number one what is my body telling me does it really mean that I'm trying to or I need to stop or does it mean that I'm trying too hard Uh, does it mean that essentially and I would classify myself as pretty much somewhat of a hypochondriac so I'm always wondering like is this like pain? Like, is this just pain or is it discomfort? And it's something that I try to like help my patients with too, because we often talk about the difference between just everyday discomfort and then obviously pain. And then, so the kind of thing that resonated, resonated with me about your work, Steve, is that there was this um, this part of your work where you talked about uh, the um, the issues that you had with breathing. So where yeah, where your lungs were essentially compressed. So I actually had, I was telling him earlier. So I had this issue last year where I had like breathing problems. And so what I've now piece together was I was working myself like really hard like to the bone so I was writing we were doing the podcast uh, like I have a private practice I'm a clinician so I was doing that I, we just we just both of us had a lot of stuff going on and so I go to the doctor and I tell her this and I'm like hey you know I'm like having like breathing problems out of nowhere and it's really weird I don't I don't get where it's coming from and so she's like why like what's going on and I was like like out of nowhere I'm doing something if I'm at the gym or whatever it is and then all of a sudden I can't I feel like I can't breathe and it feels like like my chest is caving in and so so she's like, oh, you, it's probably COVID, and I'm like, no, I never had COVID. And then she's like, yeah, I think it's COVID. So okay, fine. A week later, I come back. She does the antigen test. So no, it's not COVID. So she's like, well, I don't know what it is, but I'm pretty sure you'll be okay because, like, she's like, I t- tested your lungs. It seems like everything is fine. So I promise you, man, for an entire year up until I got into your work, I was just like, oh, I guess maybe this is anxiety. And I mean, I don't know. I can't really figure it out. It sort of comes and goes. Whatever. Like there was no explanation. No doctor could tell me what was going on. And then when I heard you talk about it on Rich Roll. I was like, oh shit, that's what was happening to me. I think it's the same exact thing. Literally when I'm like working at the gym, I'm like, oh my God, I can't breathe anymore. What the hell is happening? Am I going to have like a panic attack
1: here? Oh man. Well, I'm so glad that, that you found the work and it resonated with you because it, it can make you drive. It can drive you crazy when you have those moments because there's Again, nothing, you know, same deal. I, I in my experience, I'd go tell doctors that, and they're like, "Ah, oh, you're fine. Like you yeah, can ru- you know, you can run. you can yeah. do all this stuff. But I think it what it gets at is this kind of wonderful um interaction that like all of like our physiology, our emotions, our experience, our stress loads, et cetera, have on us. and that that like sometimes it takes like slicing and dicing that apart again and learning almost, you know, to a degree to kind of, rewire your your kind of brains or your your physiological response that often kind of gets a little haywire when you're you're you know working yourself very hard into death and etc and it just kind of goes into what i would call this kind of protective mode right? right where it's like it's like oh we're gonna shut this down and and um all this crazy stuff and you have to essentially be like okay i need to rewire this and tell myself like how to relax and breathe and not fight this thing um, and get out of this kind of state so that I can do things in the the normal everyday way that I, that I like to.
0: And you were sort of forced into that position, right? Because what was happening, it was, it almost felt automatic, but it was essentially whenever your body was in a, if correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but if it was in a, a fight or flight or sort of protection mode, that's when your lungs would sort of close up. So you had to really train your parasympathetic, nervous system to like really relax and really hone in on that practice to get to some semblance of normalcy.
1: Exactly. And that's what it is. And that's, you know, really kind of made it sharp for or sharpened my ideas for this book, because that's easy to say, but it's really difficult to do, especially in my, you know, my activity was running. So of course I'm stressed. Of course, I'm like tense. Of course, like my sympathetic nervous system is through the roof. But you really have to, you know, over time, like, you know, I talked about earlier is in those difficult moments, learn how to, okay, how do I keep my, my mind and body steady and not like have this natural reaction to tense up and try and fight? Because whenever I would try to do that, I'd be like, okay, I'm tough. I'm going to fight through this. Well, what happened is my body would just say, nope, nope, you're not like, let's shut everything down. So it really was kind of this rewiring. And I think this is why it applies to, you know, even those who have us who didn't, don't have this kind of, or didn't go through this breathing type exercises. The same thing happens is we often go too far on that kind of sympathetic, almost overdrive in difficult Mm -hmm. moments. And we've got to learn how to turn on that parasympathetic and be like, yeah, I get it. Like adrenaline hormones are flowing, but like you can still stay in control. And if you keep that steady, you're going to be able to function both physiologically and then also psychologically better. Right. Oh, yeah.
0: and, and to most people, this would seem counterintuitive to, to think that you would be quote unquote tougher by relaxing essentially. It's, it's interesting because what that ends up doing is it frees up so much So many resources, like uh, mental, physical resources, for you to be able to take on whatever challenge presents itself, as opposed to, oh, I'm in this resistance mode. Like I, whatever's happening, I need to attack or plan, plan this, plan that. Whereas opposed to maybe, you know, maybe you trained beforehand uh, for something, but now that you've completely relaxed, maybe have no expectation. The moment something sort of presents itself to you, you, you now because you're in this sort of relaxed state, you can, you know, react. Well, not react, respond and be able to take on that challenge uh, when it presents itself.
1: Exactly. I think one of the other um, um, examples that really made this clear is I talked to pilots in the, in the air force uh, and particular helicopter pilots who essentially said, Hey, you know, when we're being shot at, like your mind tends to go a little crazy and narrow into like survival mode. What you have to do is like instead of tensing up, you've got to almost relax and broaden back out because if you stay narrow, you miss what you're supposed to do because your mind in stressful situations just focuses on people are firing at me. Like, how do I survive this moment? And all you can pay attention to is like the people firing at me when you're flying the helicopter, you've got to like zoom out and pay attention to. Well, you know, what is my mission? What is my objective? How do I, you know, complete this in this moment? What do I need to pay attention to in my periphery or the buzzing and beeping noises and all that good stuff? And he mm. said the the military essentially teaches them in all sorts of simulations on how to do that, like how to relax or turn on that kind of you know uh, parasympathetic side, so that you don't go too far down that kind of survival you know, flight mode. And I think the same thing is is here in sport or whatever example is that when we go too far in that direction, all we see is the danger or the threat Mm -hmm. instead of often in order to make the right decision, we've got to see, you know, more in our periphery to understand, you know, okay, this is the action I need to take because stress often pushes us towards again, that survival mode. Which I would say is the short term action that mm-hmm. might get us, make us feel a little bit better, but isn't the thing that often helps us over the long haul, right? And we got to be able to zoom out and see that thing over the long haul.
2: Right. And I, yeah, that's actually what I was going to ask you next. So with perfectionism, can we say that it's mostly just fueled by sort of system one, system one thinking slash anxiety, where the idea is, it's like, I'm just looking for relief. Now, if I can get, you know, these tasks done in, let's say whatever the span is, maybe a day, a week or whatever, right? I I feel better about it. I feel better about my future. So it's like, then you're going over the long period. And let's say if you're looking at it in a year and you haven't taken the break, then you're like me and now you're having breathing problems. You're going to the doctor, you can't figure out what's wrong with you or whatever. Right. But the idea is essentially that it kind of boils down to like, how do I get relief now? And perfectionism is a great way to cope with it. Would that be it?
1: A- absolutely. I think you're spot on there. And I think that connection to perfectionism is, is, is brilliant because that's what it is. Often perfectionism is is driven a little bit by this like threat, fear, and security so what it does is it pushes you to cope with it, as you said, in the short term. Like, how do we solve this? Well, I'm going to keep doing, I'm going to keep getting things done. I'm yep. going to, you know, keep, you know, check off all the things on my checklist. I'm going to perform at all of these things and try and do at the highest level. And it, it gives us that temporary relief. But out over the long haul, it often backfires and gets us in the way. And often over the long haul, it pushes us and changes our motivation from, you know, being motivated to do something because we want to and or enjoy it, but doing something because we almost have this fear of like, well, if I don't do this, I'm on this anxiety is going to creep up and I'm not going to feel like I'm accomplishing things and I'm going to feel this insecurity. So it can shift our our motivation to a, a bad place as well.
0: All right.
2: And so in terms of like long-termism and just thinking about maybe even behavioral or psychological and or psychological change, so what would you say we should do with these sort of leaders, right? With coaches, uh, business leaders, executives, whatnot. So if we have an authoritarian, would you say that for the most part, what is the data point? So is it that we can kind of help train them out of that kind of, you know, let's say parenting style for lack of a better term, uh, we can coach them out of that parenting style? Or do you feel like at that point, if a person is like a Bobby Knight, like they're so far gone and it's better to maybe replace them?
1: it it depends on um how coachable they are mm-hmm. you know i think some people are highly coachable and open to change and changing their styles and all that stuff and the way i would do it is again not to go in and be like oh your styles wrong i would say well let's 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 look at what actually helps in your style maybe having high expectations does help your players to a degree but we need to couple that with like high levels of support so that they know that like you care and want them to get better. And they're not just kind of being u- utilized and used. Right. So it, it, for some, I think it depends on, can you expand that toolbox and can you, or can you not? And often, you know, going back to a point you, you guys made it uh, earlier, is often people coach or lead in that way because it's the only path that they know. Right. So the way I like to think of it is, can we give them some other tools or even show or point them at some other mentors that they could learn from and develop another style that might complement, you know, what they already know a little bit better. And if so, they're going to be better off. Now, if they, they turn to be resistant, then at some point you got to be like, I'm trying to coach this person up. I'm trying to train them, but you know, they don't want to hear it. And they just want to default to, you know, telling me this worked, you know, 30 years ago and that that's the time to kind of move on
2: Yeah. And Adam Gase is a notorious example from the New York Jets, who was like notoriously stubborn. Like this guy was unteachable. And eventually, I mean, players kind of gave up on him because they're like, okay, his offense is super simple. People are kind of figuring it out way before the game. And so, I mean, eventually, obviously he got fired. I don't, he's not in the league anymore. I don't know what he's doing these days, but yeah, you kind of get this where it seems like a form of self-sabotage. Like, I guess with the Bobby Knight, not so much because he found ways to win, but then with like some of these other guys, they don't. And then still, even still, even with the losing records still mentally, in some ways, they tell themselves like, no, this is the right way to do it. I just need more time. That's like notorious for these guys. If you just give me more time and maybe even better players, I can eventually get it done.
1: Yeah. You know, I think this is why I love coaching um because you see these examples versus the people who learn from their mistakes, even like a Bill Belichick, right. Going from Browns to new England, or even Pete Carroll, right. Going from, you know, new England to cut to USC to back to Seahawks is like the good ones update their philosophies and they learn from the mistakes. The other ones just, it's almost like their ego gets in the way and they're like, no, my system works. I know the best. And they, they get fired somewhere and then they get that second opportunity and then they do the same exact things, you know, over and over. Or even someone, you know, maybe to use a recent example, like an Urban Meyer who had success in one in- environment, right, a college system where he could control players and, and the power dynamics were a lot different. And he just says, Oh, I'm, I got this figured out. I had all sorts of success in college. And he goes to environment the NFL where it's like, Hey man, the power dynamics are totally different. Like you don't have this control over these athletes. Like they're, it's completely different, but he tries the same kind of tactics and, and system and it fails utterly because he kind of refused to like update his understanding based on the actual task at hand in the environment he was encountering.
2: Yeah. Yep. And then, so as we're starting to wind down here, if you had to pick one coach who you would say inspired you the most, who would that be and why?
1: Oh gosh, (laughs) you know, that's difficult. Um, I would actually say, so I'm going to go a coach from my, my world of track and field, which was a coach who was longtime mentor, that I was, fa- I was fortunate to have as a mentor is Tom Tellez, who was mm-hmm. who famously coached Carl Lewis and Leroy Burrell and all these wonderful sprinters, and I got to work with him in the tail in the beginning of my coaching career when he was gosh in his seventies. And what I loved about him is he was all about learning and listening to the athletes and coaching anybody. And I guess the example I would give is I remember us being at the track and. We were at some random high school track working with, you know, myself. He was working with me and then some other, you know, big time, you know, track athletes. And we're about to leave the track. And he looks over and he watches this kid who might have been like 14 years old running, doing sprints. And he walks over to him. And for the next half hour, he's just coaching this 14-year-old kid. And this is, again, the the coach who coached Carl Lewis to Olympic, you know, glory. And I, and I, and and I'm like, why, why, you know, I'm like, Tom, like, why'd you do that? And he's like, well, the kid wasn't running well. I needed, (laughs) I needed to help him. I needed to tell him what he did that, you know, did. (laughs) And I, and I love that example because it's just like, he's a coach's coach. It doesn't matter the level. It was like, I have this ability to help people. So I'm going to help people regardless of like, if they're the best in the world, or if they're just some kid trying to make the high school track or football team. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That
2: that reminds me of, uh, I forgot the name of it, but that recent Netflix movie with Kevin James on Sean Payton, that was literally it where he, you know, he was outed from the saints for a while and then legit, he went to coach a high school team and there's like this uh, scene in it where he's just watching it. And then he's like, no, I got to go down there and say something, man, this isn't working out. I literally, now he's just, you know, Super Bowl winning head coach. And now he's coaching a bunch of high school coaches.
1: I, I love that. That's, and that's what I think it's about is you see those coaches Like Sean Payton, who were like successful over the long haul, because like they 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 want to help people. And regardless of the level, they know that, you know, helping people perform better is what their kind of gift is. And they don't let their ego get in the way and be like, no, I've won the Super Bowl. I'm too good to you know help these high school coaches. It's like coaching is coaching. Let's go for it.
2: I love that so much. All right, Alan, final questions for Steve before we wrap up?
0: Yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course, buy the book, uh, where can we do that?
1: Yeah, you can get the book, Do Hard Things, anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all that good stuff, wherever you want to buy it. And then you can follow my work. I'm on all social media at Steve Magnus. And then my website, stevemagnus.com has uh, everything you could want about me.
2: I love that. Awesome. I didn't, so just before we wrap up, because we didn't have time for this today, I really just for everybody listening, please check out Steve's kind of journey and story in relation to the Nike Oregon project. Again, we didn't have time to get into it today, but like just super fascinating story. And obviously Steve on Rich Roll, one of my favorite podcast episodes ever. Super epic. You obviously get into it there. Steve, again, man, thank you so much for coming. on. So such a great show.
1: Man. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. I really enjoyed this conversation.
2: Absolutely, thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Take care.
0: All right. First of all, that was awesome. Mm -hmm. Time flew. Well, anyway, uh, everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast. We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. And also you can find us on Twitter at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you.